there's a great paper that was, uh, I can't find out the guy's name. I read it years and years ago. It really speaks to all the stuff about big data and about finding the signal, the noise, and just basically paying attention. Uh, this guy was an, ec- he was an economist going for his PhD mm-hmm. and he went to the racetracks. And at the racetrack, you always have a bunch of guys out in front trying to, trying to sell their news sheets, right? They're punters trying to say, Hey, you know, buy my news sheet. I'll help you pick the right horses. Right. So he went to them. And he said, if I give you just a handful of data points, you choose which ones, but just use a very finite number of data points, make your predictions accordingly. And they did. And he took them and he looked at the results. He came back the following week, ran the same experiment, same people. But he said, this time, take a dozen data points and did so, made the predictions. And the results were very, very interesting. On the one hand, the more data points that they could have and harness the more confident they were in their prediction. The second thing, the worse their predictions were. Right. <laughs> so it gets back to, you know, you can overthink and you can overanalyze and you can just, you know, like, like you were just asking me you know, sort of the, 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 some of these keywords. I mean, ultimately, there's only a little bit of information that you need to get you where you need to go. And the rest of it starts actually distracting or creating noise. And if you Ultimately, if you can just land on the things that make sense, that pass that sniff test and stay with them, I think that, that makes for better investors um, and more success. In my, in sort of the people that I'm watching, that's kind of what they're doing is uh, you can have 100 data point models, but they probably don't get you any further faster than a five data point model. You know what's interesting? I, I mentioned to you I was talking to um, a physicist as well. And this phenomenon even exists um, throughout the universe, actually. It's the concept, um, imagine, if you will, that right after the Big Bang, it's basically information, even energy atoms that can all be essentially called information. So you start with a very small amount of information. And as the universe continues to expand, so does information. And information is expanding so much that we use a word in science called entropy to explain for almost chaotic information. And it's been man's pursuit to try to implement models to help understand this information. And in information technology, like data compression, like a zip file, you know, like zip files, RAR files. If you mm-hmm. compress um, information, anything that is a pattern is compressible. Anything right. that is too random is basically considered raw information. And if you just take a look at man's endless pursuits, you know, economic paradigms, social, political paradigms, investing paradigms like Black Scholes, for example, various different models in which man believes that he has developed the models to help him understand and condense information in a way that would be applicable. But then there's times when they don't work at all and you continue then to get more chaos, more entropy. So I think that that's a very interesting parallel. And if you look at the history of the markets, you'll notice that initially there was not that much information. It was much more basic. I'm hearing sometimes in frontier and emerging markets, they're very basic. Sometimes it's just one stock that helps measure index. 
But as they continue to grow and they become more complex, people are striving to develop these models. And some of them are tangible. They follow the scientific method. A lot of them don't. And it's it's a very interesting way to look at things by looking at basically order and chaos. Chaos is information entropy. Order is models. And, for example, E equals MC squared condenses the whole universe in one equation to some extent. And that's the beauty of science. You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. We basically come from the perspective that there's a bifurcation between price and valuation for any underlying equity or indice or asset that we're examining. And we try to be as quantitative even towards the approach of, say, understanding the underlying fundamentals. But we recognize that price is also a key component to getting the capital appreciation you need. We run a basically an open-end hedge fund. So, you know, performance is very, uh, the crux of what it is that we do. And mm-hmm. sometimes, Andrew, I notice that there is a bifurcation between the two because you can believe something is worth X, Y, Z, but price is not confirming it. And if you become too dogmatic about it, then you're going to be a house of pain in terms of performance. So I think one of the key issues was we had to deduct the concept of traditional technical analysis, which basically uses approaches of analyzing price, but the words are very deceptive. Uh, technical sounds like it's technical, but in actuality, a lot of the tools used in technical analysis don't abide by, uh, you know, the scientific method or, or something a little bit more rigorous through some statistical testing or backtesting. So we basically eliminate that almost school of thought. And we try to wow. analyze price by looking at probabilities, by understanding, you know, typical behavior and quantifying that. Very similar to, say, a baseball card where I can look at the S&P 500 and understand certain statistics and probabilities and histograms of things that are likely to happen that helps you navigate the day-to-day gyrations in the market. So that's that's from a price component. Now, I just had an amazing conversation with a physicist discussing about the ambiguous inputs that you use when determining valuation of a particular asset. And, you know, as as nice as a model might sound, it's impacted by your inputs. And then when you allow for sensitivity analysis, it creates more permutations, which then is basically more noise. And it, it makes it a little bit more tricky. So I think one of the key schools of thoughts that's missing is almost something that is like a general universal theory that allows you to assess both price and valuation. And we work, you know, asset managers strive to, or at least some of them strive to address some of that. So I guess connected to all. I gotta disagree with you, man. It's all about just leveraging up, Peter. Isn't that really all it is? (laughs) What do you mean? Isn't it? 
I, I think what you're exploring is a rational, factual way to do it, right? right. It's a long-term formula for success, and I think that the market for the longest time hasn't really necessarily followed that approach. I think for the longest time it was just, just get leverage. Don't worry about it. I think stock picking, like basically what we're talking about is, is uh, valuation and stock picking is coming back into vogue because – you know, a rising tide floats all boats. And now that the tide's going out and QE's over and all this liquidity seems to be at risk, you have to step back and say, gee, there's a core value here and there will be a reversion to that value. What does that mean? Correct. It's the tools that are being used, though, to ascertain this reversion, quote unquote reversion. And the issue is that, you know, what methodology you're using that gives you as much of a statistical advantage as possible. That I think that is the crux of the issue here and actually the purpose effectively of this podcast series, which is get so many different perspectives to see what kind of tools are, are you know, right. I think are essential. To be honest, you know, where I came from, it, it was, you know, I've got it. I've got the classic economics background, but I said, you know, I want to, get my hands a little dirty and mm -hmm. I went into business where again, it was big data kind of stuff, you know, applying the, the, we'll call it econometrics, but basically a data driven environment where you're making decisions based on using the information that you harness, but doing it in a creative way and then applying it. That, that was my, my career trajectory. And what's interesting is while I, I do that, grab the data and point to trend at the aggregate level, Mm -hmm. You were just talking about, you know, are there ways to use these kind of tools and new approaches to also go after, you know, specific investments right. that aren't, you know, at the macro. And that's what I do also is I take that same data. And so what I've been doing for a couple of years now is I'll call it stock picking. But essentially, by harnessing what I think are the right tea leaves, I look at individual companies and I'm able to fairly accurately predict when they're going to beat or miss their earnings. Mm -hmm. And um yeah, pretty good hit rate there. It's really interesting because, again, it's it's a question of, and this is the Moneyball thing, when you when you can come in with a fresh perspective or you know take a step back and, and evaluate things sort of from the outside perspective, you you have a chance to take a look at the entire framework of what's really going on and say, you know what, coming in from the outside with a fresh pair of eyes, these are the things that seem to matter the most. So let me track down the data that's going to get me to that. Because this is a different economy. I mean, today versus 10 years ago, the, what we buy, where we buy, how we buy, totally different. And the global supply chain has been harnessed in a completely different way. But the folks who model the economy and the policymakers are using models that are pre-internet. Like literally every single person at the Fed who has a finger on the trigger got their PhDs before the internet existed. Mm -hmm. And so their frame of reference is horse and buggy while we're in the world of the automobile. And there's a lot of disconnect, but that's the opportunity. And so I've been harnessing what I feel are sort of, not feel, but what I've been demonstrated are better pieces of information and better ways of applying it. And, um, you know, whether it's at the macro level or at the company, you know, stock picking level, so to speak. On, on it's, the it's company just, level, yeah. do you think we could run yeah. by some generic example of what you would typically used to assess earnings? Yeah. So one of the things that I, I bring to the table is, is sort of a main street. I've worked in business operations for Fortune 50 companies, and I've supported Fortune 500 companies. And what that means is I've 
gotten hands-on experience with what's on the executive's dashboard. What are the five dials they're looking at when they wake up in the morning? What are the things that are going to move them to action? And I've also been given that firsthand experience in two other things. One is not just how companies operate, which is key because you get to see, you know, by the time a company does layoffs, you know, by the time uh, Intel announces a layoff, for example, they knew about that six months in advance. Mm-hmm. But they had to go through certain processes to confirm that the business cycle was winding down. And then they had to go through legal and HR and, and, and so on and so forth. And so the goal is not to – the goal is to get as far upstream as you can into, and, and get that visibility. The other thing, though, that, that I bring to the table is that experience of being in Silicon Valley. So, again, we've had this shift. I mean, it, it's amazing when you think about how the global supply chain is, has been harnessed by the Internet. So – the Internet really was, first and foremost, a warehouse management tool when it got its start. That's what Oracle really did with its, its software was to give companies better line of sight to what they had in real time in their warehouses. And that's really been what the Internet was all about, was information management, whether it was information about things or these days with Facebook, information about information. Twitter, it's just informa- It's the CB radio of, of the 21st century. You know, Hey, Peter, I'm going out and I'm going to get a coffee. Come on back. You know, that kind of experience where it's not really doing anything. It's a lot of noise, but there might be a signal there. But, you know, I mean, ultimately what, what happened in Silicon Valley is as the Internet harnessed the supply chain, you know, you start to see just by being here, you start to see where some of the threads are emerging that are different from what used to be there. And one of them was semiconductors. When you, when you really think about it, it, it is the universal common denominator now in everything that gets made or done. It either has a semiconductor chip in it or a semiconductor chip was in the thing that made it or did it. And so if you look at Asia, where you are right now, semiconductors are the lifeblood for those economies. I mean, I can predict what the Taiwan Stock Exchange is going to be doing simply by tracking some of the semiconductor variables that I track. I mean, literally one month in advance. But in the U.S., it's not as straightforward because we're not as high tech dependent, shall we say. So what I do is instead I harness a lot of different of different experiences here to take a look at a company and recognize, you know, without kind of sharing the secret sauce, but there are certain operational, publicly available operational pieces of information that you can pull together. You know, the typical analyst is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to triangulate. We'll use Intel as an example. Hey, is Intel growing or shrinking? And and what what can I do to find out? You know, so they might do channel checks, you know, the what's going on with uh, Intel sales. What I'm doing is I'm saying, why do you want to wait until the thing is made and shipped and sitting on the shelves to find out if it's selling? This global supply chain is so tight that Intel knew before they even shipped it what the end user demand was going to look like. And so you don't want to wait till it's made and shipped. You want to go further upstream. You want to go practically to whether the semiconductor components, the wafers, the actual, you know, six months in advance before the chips get made and sold in the PC, you want to be able to tap in. It's kind of like, let me use a more uh, straightforward example. I don't want to know GM's car sales by looking at what they shipped to their uh, distributors, to the lots. Maybe I'll look at the tire sales from Goodyear to GM because the tires have to be there before the car is finished. You know? So let me look at some of the subcomponents first. And then maybe instead of just looking at the, the tires, maybe I'll look at the rubber demand. And that gives me, you know, knowing that it takes X number of weeks or months. And so what I try to do is harness that global supply chain. And specifically what I've uncovered is, is the power of the semiconductor 
to give that visibility and say, look, it always takes this number of weeks to make these chips that go into this thing, and it takes a couple months for this thing to get finished. And so, in essence, what's going on today with semiconductors is giving me what's going on with consumer demand three months from now. Andrew, let me um, ask: Is I'd imagine that this kind of analysis, I, I'm imagining that you're going to put certain weights to each piece of data, and it's basically causality to the next quarter earnings. Is that a correct assumption in which Absolutely. you're taking XYZ data point and a few and then you go, this is the weight and impact it's going to have on the earnings, right? What's interesting is it's not a complicated model. Right. What I've done is I've stripped it down. I mean, to be honest, again, you go to any given CEO of the, of the Russell 1000, they all operate pretty much the same way. They're all looking at information that's coming in from their sales team that tells them what the end user demand is. Again, the internet has now enabled us to get forward visibility. And then there are only so many things that CEO can do. I mean, by the time we get to earnings season, let's just look at it from a procedural standpoint. We're six months into the new quarter by the time any given CEO typically is releasing what they did last quarter. When they're presenting earnings for what they just did, they already pretty much know where they're going to land for this quarter. What they do is then they're trying to manage the bottom line. The top line's pretty much set. There's not a lot that can change because, again, order flow and so forth, big companies, you're going to already have gone out and, and it takes a couple months to land that order and so forth. So they know what the top line's going to look like. Right. It's a question, what can they do to manage the bottom line to bring in the EPS where they committed? And so there are a couple things, again, without revealing the secret sauce of what I do, but there are only a couple things you have to look at, again, going back to my experience with the, the executive dashboards, to know exactly where they're going to be hitting the gas or hitting the brakes. And so what I've done is I've come up with, uh, it took a lot of work, trust me, but basically I've harnessed what I think are the right data points to give me that visibility to what the CEO is thinking. And therefore, if I can see right now what they're thinking today, and, and how they're acting. It's not just thinking, but what they're really doing. Are they really tapping the brakes? Then I can turn around and say, look at what the expectations are, what the forecasts are, and say, okay, you know, everyone knows Intel is going to have, I'm, I'm not beating up on Intel, I'm just Acme. Everyone knows Acme's doing badly, but maybe I've got line of sight that says, yeah, they're doing badly, but not as bad as everyone thinks based on what I'm seeing from this operational data that I'm looking at. And so knowing that CEO has the ability to fine-tune a few things that will generate a penny or two of earnings, I can basically peel that out. Now, that what's really interesting is some companies do it better than others. I mean, there's really there's, – there's definitely some, some dogs out there where the, the management seems to be on autopilot not really paying attention. I mean, if I were private equity, that would be where I would go. Is I would, I would want to do a, a, an LBO, buy out those companies, get rid of management, and, and bring in a new management because it would just – Instantly, you just put in some basic management process in place, and you'll see margins shoot up. Mm. But you can also see where, where the CEOs of these companies, some of them have to, you know, a McDonald's needs to manage to today. They've got a lot of things that are going on today, and their business is very near term. Whereas consulting companies, information-oriented companies, you take the high-tech world, they've got to take action today for things that are maybe three to six months out. Right. And so there's a longer delay. And that what that means is translated is I have visibility to a lot of what these companies are doing six months in advance. And so what I've been doing, I've been publishing this out in the public domain. Uh, also, uh, some of my clients get it in, in different ways. And um, 
I've been 60% accurate at predicting when a company is going to be outside the box, when they're going to beat or miss their uh, revenue targets. I've actually looked at customs transactions between two countries. This is not proprietary data on my side, so I can disclose it. And I've been able to get quite a bit. You can actually learn a lot between um, the public information that is curtailed to trading and transactions between even two companies or, you know, distribution companies that have an affiliation with, say, the parent technology company. You can understand quite a bit. I, I do that because I'm here in Asia. The issue is that I typically have to have the information on both countries if you want the accurate data to, you know, confirm and cross-check. Sometimes I haven't really been able to get it to that magnitude of accuracy that would make me feel comfortable that this is a worthwhile endeavor. But maybe my, I guess my comment is that overthinking that situation. No, it's so funny you raise that because today I'm actually putting together a report. I'm looking at a few of them, what I consider to be the key benchmark ports around the world. And I'm looking at, you know, ultimately cargo shipments. I mean, at the end of okay. the day, the economy really is dictated by buying stuff and um, not to confuse things, but it's exactly like what you're saying. If you start looking at trade, is stuff leaving the ports of Pusan or Taiwan or from China, you know, all the various ports there and what's happening over here in the U S and so forth. What happens is you don't have to be, we're not going for precision, like exactly this much came from China and exactly that much went to, to the U S or wherever. But you can get a triangulation that says, geez, and this is what I'm putting together today, is to say, you know, we have a global downshift. And it's indicated, and it's, it's not a, you know, a lot of times you get this, it's easy to get lost, you lose the forest for the trees. Oh, this data point came out and everyone gets excited. Or they get depressed. We have to look at the trend. And the trend has been downshifting for the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that's it's not a horrible thing. I mean, we've, we've had a really good run. This is a business cycle. You know, when we hit a huge number, it's the law of big numbers. You're going to slow down. But what you find is that every single major trading region is slowing down in the movement of goods. Mm. And that's a demand thing. That's not a, oh, oil's down type of thing. That's playing into it a little bit. You know, you have some pricing things and you kind of work your way through it. But I don't think that's overanalyzing at all. In fact, that's the that's one of the basic premises of my approach, which is start with the supply chain. If we're moving things around, you know, make sure that it's also mecha- mecha- uh, mechanics. You know, I, I like to do bottoms up. I like to make sure that what I'm looking at is apples to apples. You know, I want to make sure, for example, when I look at U.S. trade, I, you know, I'm going to strip out oil and autos because that distorts the picture. And everything else is sort of the core economy. So that's what I really want to know is what's the core economy really doing. And so I think it's totally the starting point. You and I are coming from the right place, I think, right. which is okay. people buying stuff or not. Are they buying it more or less? And then you can drill down and start to see, well, are they, you know, what exactly are they buying? And then I, I sort of shift to semiconductors because, again, as it turns out, especially when you're talking Asia, a lot of the goods that are really being shipped out are high tech. And, you know, when you talk high tech, you're talking semiconductors. And again, you've got a very tight supply chain. So that's, to me, the prism for understanding trade is going to be semiconductor movements and demand. Now, bearing in mind, this is kind of a dog and tail kind of discussion also is, you know, for example, one of the things I like to advise uh, folks on is, you know, you got you to understand at some point, all roads lead back to China right now, because sometimes they're the dog and sometimes they're the tail. And for the U.S., 
China is the tail. What we do drives a lot of our business with China. Turn it around, Germany is the tail to the Chinese dog. What is happening right now, the, Ger Germany's in a recession. It doesn't matter how we play with the numbers. They're recessionary. So is most of Europe. And a lot of that's because there really is uh, a slowdown in, in China, and they really don't have much of a domestic consumption economy right, right now. When they buy, they like to buy brand names, luxury names. U.S. doesn't really make luxury goods. You know, if you think of the luxury car market, you're not going to think Ford, right? You're going to think BMW. You're going to think Ferrari, Porsche. Mm -hmm. When you think foods, you're going to think French wines. When you think of uh, clothing, apparel, you're going to think Gucci, you know, Vendi. You're going to, in essence, think of all these things that are made in Europe. So as China has slowed down their consumption, the first place that got hit was basically Germany and Europe. Germany because they don't just play in the luxury goods market, they play in the machinery market. Mm. Um, so I, th these are all the things I think you have to start with. You have to start with the fundamental building blocks. There's a lot of other things that come into play. You know, the retail investors and institutional investors, some of them are looking at the bond market, you know, fixed income, and some of them are going to be looking at the equity markets. And there's always going to be uh, other dimensions that come into play. But what's interesting to me is you don't have to get that complicated. I think there's a, there's a lot of overthinking that has happened. I think a lot of models have been built up that are extraordinarily sophisticated, but you know they don't really add much. There's this diminishing return on the amount of effort that's going into them. I mean, ultimately, Germany is an exporting country. Their stock market is going to be determined by the level of exports. So how do we find out what that level is going to be? Not looking backwards, but looking forwards. And so that's kind of the, the essence of Moneyball is to come in and, and reevaluate and, and just sort of not get locked into things, but say, what, what kind of historical data do we have available? And what, what really ties back to what's really going on? You know, if Germany's manufacturing autos and machinery, well, then I want to know what they're – I want to get to the subcomponent demand because the subcomponent demand is going to have a leading capability. Um, Let's talk about and, Germany for yeah. a second, because I know you're, you've sure. been using these examples. For me, as an equity investor, I see the DAX making an all-time high. We understand there's a lot of quantitative easing that's happening. That's keeping equities in a very uber uh, bullish situation. Now, what I'm hearing, and now I don't have the analytics behind that, but what I am hearing is that despite... You know, these events that are happening with, with Russia and Greece, that German exports are still doing relatively strong because of this quantitative easing environment. Do you understand I would, different I, or I would, otherwise? Yes, I do. I have different data. So let's, let me, let me, show, I have something that I call, it's, it's an EU shipping index. It's a proprietary compilation of shipping data that is very, very sensitive and predictive. It's got a six-month advanced view of the of the EU economy. And frankly, when we talk about the EU and we talk about shipping, we're really talking Germany. Right. They're they're the engine here. I think what's happening is we we got to get back to what the market's responding to versus what the fundamentals are saying. And I think what the market's responding to is a roughly thirty percent drop in the euro relative to the dollar. Mm -hmm. So. We're talking about Germany's competing with us when it comes to coal, steel, machinery, whatever. All of a sudden, they got a 30% price advantage. Of course, they're going to be sitting 
a lot better. And of course, the expectation is exports will be going up. The problem here is a premise problem. I think the narrative is if if you somehow get some kind of currency advantage, then boom, you're off to the races. Except we've gotten almost 25 rate cut. We've got 25 central banks have cut rates. So we've got this currency war going on right now. China's done it. Japan's done it. Everyone's doing it. And this is kind of a zero-sum game. There's only so much steel that's being demanded. And worse, looks like that's shrinking a little bit. So you have everyone chasing a, a limited pie thinking, I've got this currency advantage. And yet, it's just kind of moving the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It doesn't matter. Demand is going down. So it's a relative advantage that is a short-term thing. There's only so much that Germany's going to be able to sell. And then at a certain point, they're actually contracting. And that gets back to what I'm actually seeing in the real data, not the expected change. Uh, you know, basically the market responding to, oh, you've got this great advantage now. You're, you know, BMW can now go up against uh, GM easier in, uh, in, in or, or against uh, Lexus or whomever it is over in China. They've got some kind of price advantage. Well, the reality is there, Chinese demand isn't there anymore. It really isn't. I mean, we can take the official data and you can hold it up to the light and make your determination about the reliability. But fundamentally, stuff moving in and out of Germany has been contracting for some time, meaning people are not buying German goods at the same rate as they were this time last year. They are contracting in terms of the amount of exports. And that's in the stuff that I look at. And that stuff that I'm looking at is the early indicator, sort of like looking at semiconductors. Again, you won't see that show up for a few months in the broader, more mainstream data points. But by Q2, Germany's in a full-blown recession, so is the EU. Everyone in Europe, they're not selling as much. It's a relative thing. Oh, you know, Spain, we're doing better than we were last year. Gee, that's great, and I'm happy for you. But the reality is, from an economic growth standpoint, the utilization is just not there anymore. And there's a reason. So, yeah, yeah I was, I was um, in January, I was meeting with some folks, and everyone was getting excited about the what could be the potential bazooka that was being used in the ECB. And, and I was looking at that, and, and my comment for the past few months prior to this was, it doesn't matter what's happening in the EU. It only matters what's happening in Germany. They have been the gatekeeper. They, they've been the only ones doing the thumbs up or thumbs down for anything that the European bank will do. And the only reason that they were able to move forward is because, you know, Merkel and her team saw, oh, my God, we're entering a recession. Unless something quickly happens, we're in a bad place. That tells you a little bit more about the reality. The reason that we went that they've gone out and done their version of QE is because things are really that bad. And Germany finally blinked and said, you're right. They really are bad today, and they can only get worse unless we take action. Andrew, have um, you had a chance to take a look at Switzerland as well with this um, revaluation of the currency, or it's too small of a market for you? You know, to be honest, it's not that it's too small, George. I don't have good data. I don't, okay. I don't bring anything to the table that other people have. And um, I, I can't really comment on it except to sort of sit back and say, wow, this is really interesting. You know, yes. To me, some of the interesting outliers are – it's like Brazil, you know, how is it that Brazil has not cut their rates yet, considering that they're one of the supplier economies out there and their customers like China are not buying as much? You know, mm. they're, they're at a weak place. You know, we, I mean, the counterpoint to Brazil would be Australia. They were ahead of the curve in terms of cutting. They, were, they, they saw the writing on the wall and moved very quickly. And then you've got Japan. That's the other one that's an outlier to me because 
last year I was saying we were going to see parity with the euro. And the euro was like at around 120. And I'm like, no, it's going to be parity. And with the yen, I've been saying it's got to be 140. They have to go even more nuclear. And up wow. to now, China's been the one blocking that move. China was the one trying to keep them below 100. Sort of, uh, sort of a blowback from from the two of them going at it over uh, trade and war issues. You know, war to, still, still sort of um, some. I think you're you're familiar with the cultural challenges between China and Japan and some of the the issues that that World War II still raises even today. Right. And uh, China, two years ago in 2013, was really putting it to Japan. They were. I don't know if everybody remembers, but you know you had. Uh, a lot of riots. You had you had a lot of people striking. You had Toyota having problems selling and, and so forth. And that was a, so it's a very real thing. But they were also getting punished in the bond markets. Eventually, that didn't hold up. China, Japan is is just basically punching way above their weight class. <laughs> they they have two problems. I mean, one is um, the the most core one. This is the one I like to look at. Is they don't make anything the world really wants anymore. And I think that's being masked in some ways. But when you think about the digital economy that we have today, there isn't one Japanese product that anybody wants. The TVs don't really come from Japan. Our consumer electronics don't really come from Japan. Networking devices don't come from Japan. PCs don't. When you look at actual, this is interesting, I I recently did an analysis. If you look at imports into the U.S. from our trading partners, over the past nine years and over the past four years, There's only one country that has contracted in the nominal dollar amounts that they've sold us. That's Japan. You've got Korea shift. I think it was like 30 or 40 billion dollar increase over the past few years in terms of the amount of stuff that we bought from them. Japan, they're falling backwards. And it's because they don't really, they've so disconnected from the world. They don't make things we really want. They make cars. They make great cars. But other than cars and some steel, what do they really make that people are really buying, you know, in volume production? And so that's why, on the one hand, they've got this long-term challenge. They don't make things that the rest of the world is now enjoying. And I think Taiwan and South Korea are quite happy that that's the case. But when you talk about the yen, if you look at what happened when they dropped the yen, industrial production went up, exports went up. It was great for a while, but then, it, you know, after a year, it played out. That helps in the short term, and that's really the only immediate piece of ammunition that the central bank or anyone else has in Japan. You know, bomb, you know, every time they bomb the yen, business picks up. And that that's a short-term solution, but the long-term problem is their I mean, if you look at their debt to GDP, you look at their you, know, you start throwing in their demographics. This is a country that is going to experience the sort of the, the what they call what they call the Black Wednesday that George Soros had with the Bank of uh, of uh, England. England. You yeah. Know, yeah, where basically their their economy does not justify the value of the yen. It just doesn't, and there's no changing that. There's there's it's not a cyclical thing. This is a huge structural problem for them. Their their economy is shrinking. It just is, and it's it's on a downslope, and it's going to continue on that downslope for at least a decade. I spent four years working in Japan, so I can sort of speak to this from a perspective of, of having lived and, and breathed business in Japan. They've lost it. They really have lost it, and yet their yen is strong. So for me, I'm just sitting there. We were talking about outliers like Switzerland. I mentioned Brazil. To me, it's just a matter of who's going to go in there and do that Black Tuesday. You know, who's going to be the Soros? You know that a lot of people have um, speculated on some dramatic collapse, yet um, it hasn't really worked for people yet. You know, 
I know. And that's that's the question. Is And I think that in the case of Soros with the Bank of England, that was a very one-to-one. It was very clear who the players were. Right. Um, I go back to looking at China as the as the hidden hand here trying to prop up, and so is Korea to a certain degree, trying to prop up that yen and keep it. Because, again, Japan does make things that do compete with Korea and China. When you looked at, for example, when they when the yen dropped from 80 to 100, what was interesting is if you look at steel shipments, suddenly Korea's steel shipments to Japan collapsed because all of a sudden Japanese companies were, were sort of domestically manufacturing and consuming. So you have that, that logical shift when, when, when you have that, that uh, exchange rate change. There's a very big blowback that will happen if it goes to 140 and the players who get hit the most are going to be basically China, Taiwan and Korea. And so there's, there is, I mentioned China has sort of a, a love-hate relationship with, with Japan that played out. Then you have just the straight mercantilist thing. Korea does not want a cheap yen. It hurts them, you know, because they do trade in some of the same things. And so I look at this and say, who's got the big guns here? It's China. They're the only ones that can prop up the yen. The only ones right now who are motivated to prop up the yen at this level. And eventually, you can't do it forever. But I think you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a timing thing, but you just sort of sit back and go, at some point in time, 140 is inevitable. Yeah, but the market can outlast us, right? Potentially, yes. Let's talk about hookers, right? And device index and, and <laughs> some of your observation. Like, well, yeah. I, I thought that's a well, good you know, tagline. Let's talk about hookers for a second. Let's talk about hookers. <laughs> uh, only talk, though, right? This is And this is all like... Only you know, talk. Second and no touching. Second... <laughs> Well, they do have their hand, I mean, finger on the pulse, pulse of the economy. Of the economy. <laughs> so no, it, it, it's, it's fun to smirk and, and kid around about this, but, but there's, there's, you know, let's take, let's take this reality. Yesterday, the retail numbers come up for the U.S. Do you know who was the number one forecaster for retail yesterday? Me. Who? You. I, okay. I beat, I beat every single Wall Street pro out there, all 86 of them. I was the most accurate forecaster for retail, and it's based off of my vice index, where uh, I look at booze, broads, bong hits, and blackjack. Mm-hmm. I basically look at gambling, drugs, alcohol, and prostitute consumption. It's a simple, quantified model, and it gives me not just a, I feel, a better insight into what the American consumer is doing, but it gives it to me with a lead. I knew this information three months ago. I knew what the consumer was doing, and I can... Let, let's get let's get kind of academic about it if we can. Let's start with the theoretical, and then I'll I'll share with you how I get the data. Because again, getting the data is the fun part. You know, again, it goes back to what it, what's our goal, right? We want to track certain things out there because we believe that if we can get a hand on what people are doing or companies are doing with their spending, that gives us line of sight to some investment opportunities. It could be an inflection shift, could be you know any number of things. What I realized is. Most economists would agree that luxury spending is that tip of the spear when it comes to consumer spending. That is the leading indicator, the ultimate leading indicator. Right. And, you know, it's, it's frivolous money. You know, do I, you know my God, it's, it's totally not a need. It's absolutely a want, but it's, it's the, the ultimate want. It's stuff where you go, I'm just going to blow some money because I feel good. Well, the challenge with luxury spending, tracking it, has been what do you track? So for the longest time, I think it was Morgan Stanley was tracking, uh, it could be JP Morgan, I'm not sure. They had a luxury index and they were looking at the, they were looking at Sotheby's, mm-hmm. Tiffany sale. In other words, they were looking at the 1% activity. 
And that doesn't really, especially in the most recent business cycle, we've had sort of a, a bifurcation of the economy. I did not feel that that really spoke to, I, I thought it was too narrow a definition of luxury. You know, one person's definition of luxury might be, you know, really cool new shoes. Another person's is a yacht. So how do we find what everyone indulges in when they feel good and what they pull back on when they don't feel good? What, what's a luxury spend? And I realize vice is, you know, they've been with us forever. Everyone indulges in vices. It's just a question of what's defining a vice and how do we get that data? So once I was looking at that, I realized that, you know, we can get great data. We can, I, I can now harness 20 years worth and I repeat that, 20 years worth of quantified data for gambling, prostitution, uh, drinking, and drugs. I mean, there's there's data out there, again, thanks to the Internet. And it's publicly available if you know how to go after it and harness it. You know, a lot of that is using the, the tools of the Internet and scraping and you know, getting a little creative at, at times. Mm. And what I found is when I put this together, and it's not one of these dynamic models where it reweights things. It's, it is what it is. People spend... In, the, in this way, in good times and bad times. It's just, it's a very, you know, statistically speaking, since we're both sort of number oriented, it has a correlation of almost 90, which is almost a perfect correlation, but it has that correlation to retail spending a couple months in advance. So it's not just a powerful correlation, it's a powerful correlation leading. And it's very compelling. So that, that's the academics. But then the question is, well, how do you go out and get, how do you find out what's going out on with, with hookers? And, and the answer is very carefully and always legally. Discreetly. Uh, def- <laughs> discreet. Well, definitely my wife knows. So, you know, recently, you know, and, 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 I, and I harnessed the data and I harvest it and it's been very informative. So I, I even did a survey over the holidays where I, you know, we, we have the, you know, your standard economic survey, like the Fed does their, their business outlook survey where they go to the local manufacturers and business people once a month and they, they hand, they hit them up with a survey that says, you know, how are business conditions today? How do you see them in six months? What are your customers telling you? So I did the same thing, except it just so happened that the business owners I looked at happened to be escorts. Mm-hmm. Did a survey and, um, cause I wanted to know about inflation. In fact, funny story, uh, last year I went to the Wall Street Journal. And I went to Fox News and I said, would you guys like to kind of help me with this survey? And specifically what I'm looking for is let's go to Larry Krugman or Larry Summers. Let's go to Krugman. Let's go to all these so-called big thinkers who think they know what's going on in the economy. And let's ask them the same questions. And I'll ask the escorts and then we'll see who's right, you know, six months down the line. I said, but here's the challenge. I kind of need a budget because I'm going to be taking up some time of these escorts. And the Wall Street Journal was, was, was great because obviously, you know, who wants to get involved in, in something that's going to be, you know, a little bit toxic and a little bit hands, you know, geez, we're the Wall Street Journal. Do we really want to be underwriting some kind of excursion involving, you know, prostitutes? They demurred and just said, well, we don't have budget. Fox News, of course, was much more fun. They said, uh, oh, yeah, well, that's because you're talking to print media. TV always has the money. <laughs> in any case. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, well, that's what they said. They, I, I, I don't know. We, we, I ended up doing it on my own. And okay. uh, what was interesting is you know, I did a survey. And, you know, there's low end, high end, and, and middle price points. So you can, get to, um, you can get to a fair representation. And what I found was some interesting uniformity. What I found was that everyone was saying they, they – and they didn't see costs going up in the next six months. And at the same time, because of that, they didn't need to raise prices. So let me take a step back and what that means to me. 
they don't see inflation, they don't expect inflation, and so they're not responding to it, that their margins are secure at this point and predictable. The second thing that they said was in terms of their current client demand and what they were hearing is that there was no, it was just sort of steady as you go. There was no increase or decrease in demand. And that that's interesting because, you know, usually you might hear, well, you know, they're having to tighten their wallet, you know, pull back a little bit of spending or you know, bonus. They expect a great bonus. And so things are, are uh, you know, trying to, I'm trying to, trying to be careful, get the right word here, popping up, so to speak. No, it's steady as you go. So here we have a demand-driven situation that's constant. We have a situation where, so basically their top-line expectations are, are basically the same as they were, and they don't see it changing in six months. And their bottom line is the same. And what I think is really critical here is not just what this says about inflation going forward, what they're hearing from themselves and from their clients. I think one of the most compelling things was, you know, a lot of them said, and a lot of this is because of oil prices coming down. It's enabling their clients to maintain the spending level. So I want to, I want to really look at that if I can, Peter, if that's okay. If we have, we have. Time. Sure, sure. Let's try to make it short and sweet. Yeah. So basically what they're saying is, yes, everyone's out there spending money and you would think it's inflationary, but the reality is the opposite. They're only spending money because they have this gas dividend. And it really is affecting them. As soon as gas prices stabilize or start to move up, spending is going to immediately drop. And that's contrary to what I think people are expecting. There's this expectation out there that inflation's picking up because it's demand driven. Oh my God, everyone's spending money. Well, it's actually the opposite. What's going to happen is inflation will drop away by the wayside again once we start to see any move by the Fed to raise rates or once we see any shift in inflation. Oil prices aren't going to go down that much more. We bought them. I mean, we're not going to see $30 oil. You know, 45, 50, 60, who knows? It's only going to go up. Right now, in the first half, the stuff is rippling through the economy in a positive way. We're still seeing the spending. We're only now seeing things like uh, truck rates are going down. Again, we go back to the supply side of life. Hey, it took a while for oil prices to suddenly drop and get so ingrained in expectations that truckers had to lower their prices because you know, their costs were down and they had to pass that along. Reality is 67% of everything in this country is shipped by a truck. So you basically have lowered the cost of goods for 67% of the economy by 20%, you know, however much it costs. And all this stuff is still rippling through the economy, but you get to the second half, it starts to play out. Consumer spending is going to retrench. And meanwhile, we have these wonderful discussions about the Fed's finger on the trigger rate hikes. Man, I could see the Fed... Just all this great, all this great and positive news through June. They raise the rates. Boom. By the second half, everything's starting to fall apart. It just, I could just see them totally misreading the situation. Right. And that's the opportunity, right? Yeah. Let me, let me stop there and. Sure. <laughs> you have questions? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for, for this uh, synopsis on the vice index. Let's. Let's talk about what, what I like to do with many of uh, the guests that come on is we play basically a word association game because there's still so many things I want to talk to you about. Unfortunately, time is, in our case, not finite. Uh, it is finite in this case. We, we have the issue that um, what, we, what I'll do is I'll just say a word, a phrase, a concept or idea and just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh, boy. OK, put me on the spot. OK. Well, this should be easy. I'm going to throw a few softballs. Okay, so Moneyball. Fun. Sl the Sloan Conference. 
I'm not sure if you're familiar. It just I'm happened. I'm not familiar with that. It's a, it, a conference that happens uh, on an annual basis where uh, top people related to professional sports talk about quantitative analysis for athletics. No way. I'm not familiar with that. I got to check out. Oh, so you're missing out. You can't I'm be the Moneyball guy if you don't know about the slow conference. I got to get there. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Next one. Big data. Same old, same old. Um, wow. I don't know what to respond to that. All right. Um, That's good. That's fine. Too many thoughts come to mind. <laughs> okay. Qualitative data. Fun color. Okay. Your best leading indicator. Jobless claims. Your top investment idea. Uh, do we mean stock or just in general? Whatever. Your choice. Disney. Hmm. Econ metrics. Useful, but really ultimately just accounting. Information overload. Information overload. Signal versus noise. This conversation. Excellent and fun. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 